Welcome back to the Why I'm Kona podcast. Join us on the six-part series from Dr. Mike Brown as he shares on the church's response to the LGBTQ plus community. Let's jump right in. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. The first half of the morning, we're going to be digging into the word and asking what does scripture say about these profoundly important life and death issues. And then the second half, we're going to focus on a particular aspect of sexuality that's under such attack today. Uh, how do we know that we know that the things that we hold to are right and true? How do we know that the things that we were warning about yesterday are real right warnings? Well, first and foremost is the testimony of the word. For us as believers, that's first and foremost. And that's what has to be grounded deeply in our heart. As we said yesterday, the word of God separates between soul and spirit. Another way that we know things are wrong is simply natural law. The way God made us function, biology. And the third way we know things are wrong is by reproduction. Where does this thing go as it multiplies? What's the trajectory? We talked about some of that. But what I want to do is give you a six-minute summary of what we're going to cover today. When I encouraged you yesterday to download the Ask Dr. Brown Ministries app, if you scroll down, you'll see something that's called Consider This. Uh, these are videos. We've just put out 11 so far. It takes a lot to put them out. But they're five- or six-minute videos, animated videos, where we kind of give an overview of a subject. So I'm going to start with the summary, and then we're going to dig deep into the Word together. So in our Consider This series, this is the video called, Can You Be Gay and Christian? All right, so that's the little summary, but you have access to that, right? In the app, Consider This, and you'll find that video. So let's start to open this up, because surely gay theologians and and those allies have answers to these things and have rebuttals to these things. So, so let's open it up. Let's dig deeper into Scripture. So we start with Genesis chapter 1. We go to the beginning. And we look again at God creating human beings. And Scripture says that we're created in His image. So there's something unique about the male. There's something unique about the female. And together, we reflect the fullness of God's image. So Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, or mankind, humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind, in Hebrew, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So right here from the foundation, we understand. that Was that an amen? Come on, I felt that. <laughs> Sneeze, something. All right, quick story. I got to tell you a quick story. Is that all right? Okay. So I was preaching in an African-American church in 1986, about 600 people. And I, I, I can do scholarly lectures and, and, and present papers at, at esoteric conferences. I can do all that. But my preaching has always been very, very simple. I was telling the Korean translator yesterday, I said, don't worry, my preaching is very, very simple, easy to translate. I've always preached like that. So I'm preaching away, and, and one of the brothers out in the congregation yells out, make it plain. I thought, well, I don't know how to make it any more plain. This is a simple, clear, basic message. I'm not using 
high-level vocabulary. I thought, okay, let me, let me bring it down some more. So I got preaching even more. And then one of the elders on the platform yells out, make it plain. I thought, I don't know how to make it any more plain. And then it hit me. And if, if this was filled with black Americans here, they'd all be laughing the whole time. That's, that's a way of saying, preach it, brother. Preach it, brother. Say it plainly. Make it plain. So I say it in an audience like this, everyone just looking here. I say it in other settings, they're hysterical laughing. But uh, so I'm going to make it plain, all right? I'm going to make it plain. There are only two sexes. There are not an infinite number of sexes or an infinite number of genders. And, and sex and gender are not what we perceive them to be. I was having an argument with an activist in, in front of our, our city council meeting once in North Carolina about some of these issues. And he said to me, it is absolutely primitive to judge gender based on what's between your legs, based on biology. Gender is what's between your ears. In other words, it is whatever you perceive it to be. So this cultural madness that we're entering into is based on departing from these foundations. The bottom line is, although there are people who are intersex, who have a biological or chromosomal abnormality, just like someone might be born missing a limb, or someone might be born with a defect in their eyes or in their ears, or they're missing a finger, right? So there is something wrong in, in, in the way that that child came out physically, but in point of fact, eyes are made for seeing, and ears are made for hearing, and feet are made for walking. We understand that. There are only two sexes, and, and that's how it divides. Every human being, I'm going to tell you something really profound. Every human being that ever came into the world, with the exception of Adam and Jesus, had a mother and a father. Wow. That's heavy stuff, right? That is the biological reality. Only two sexes, male, female, he created them. And then the next verse, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. That can only be done by a man and a woman. It's not insulting to others. It's not critical of others. But here, here's a very simple illustration. There's a gorgeous island just discovered, thriving with, with everything that you need to live. You put 10 committed gay couples there, five men, uh, five women, or excuse me, however it breaks out, right? You, you, <laughs> 10 couples, well, yeah, so 10 couples. So let's, let's say you got 10 men, 10 women in there, all same-sex couples. And, and you, you leave them there for 100 years. They have everything they need for life. You come back 100 years later, you just have bones. That's all you have. They're all gone. There's no insult. There's no attack. It's, that's the reality. You put, you put 10 heterosexual couples there. You come back 100 years later, you've got several generations. You've got a thriving community. In other words, I'm just talking about in the natural, only one can reproduce. We're not talking about in vitro fertilization or adopting other children. We're just saying those are realities. That's the way God made it. When he said, be fruitful and multiply, the only ones who can do that biologically are heterosexual. Because that's our design. That's not bigotry. Biology is not bigotry. Those are just facts. When we get to the second chapter, it says in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So it's not just companionship. It's not just he says, I don't want him to be lonely, so I'm going to give him a companion, but a suitable helper. Why did Adam need a helper? 
because the commission was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And in order to do that, he had to have a mate so together they could procreate and raise children. It wasn't that he needed a helper to take care of the garden because it was a big, the Garden of Eden was big. It was that he needed a helper to fulfill the commission of God. Only together, male and female, can that be fulfilled. If a homosexual couple says, well, we're not stopping heterosexuals from doing anything, we're not arguing that. We're not saying that a homosexual couple is stopping a heterosexual couple from being married and having children. We're simply saying it wasn't what God designed or intended. It, it wasn't the way he created things. Even the idea of polygamy is a deviation. Right? Adam did not have, God did not give Adam Eve and Yvette and Yvonne. Right? That was not the ideal. And polygamy is always negative when it comes up in the Old Testament. There are negative associations with it. But in point of fact, God's going to make a suitable helper. So all the animals, no suitable helper found. So what happens? What happens? Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was sleeping. He took one of the man's ribs or his side, selah in Hebrew, and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib or side he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, for she was taken out of man, Ish. So it's a play on words. So I tried to explain in the English in that slide that, that she's called woman because she's taken out of the man. That's not the English derivation, but the Hebrew, she's called Isha because she's taken out of the Ish. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The two become one flesh. There is a unique union, biologically, sexually, emotionally, socially, of the man and the woman. They are made differently, they are wired differently, and the two of them coming together become one. The woman coming out of the man, now the two come together and become one. There is a series of books, bestsellers years ago, and what was the title? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And the simple truth is that Mars plus Mars or Venus plus Venus does not equal Mars plus Venus, and it never will. So what's interesting is that this is the only thing the Bible knows for the rest of the Bible. Every single reference to marriage, every law about marriage, every reference to family, to parenting, every parable, every story, every illustration, having anything to do with marriage always presupposes male-female. That's the only thing through the entire Bible. Not only so, even when you have deviations that are not ideal, like polygamy, they still presuppose male-female. So let's say you're reading the Bible as a gay couple. I don't say this to demean or insult people, but just a reality. You're reading it as a gay couple, and here's the scripture. You're a child growing up in a same-sex home. Honor your father and mother. Well, that's not a fit. You might say, yeah, but some kids don't have a mommy or dad. Okay, something's missing. But it's not two daddies. It's not two mommies. It's presupposed. Honor your father and mother. You get to the New Testament. Paul gives instructions for husbands and wives. Let's say you're a same-sex couple, and you're reading that. Which one is the husband? Which one is the wife? It's not a proper fit. You know, illustration commonly uses is, is let's say you, you've got an Android phone and someone else has an Apple phone and you're trying to explain how to find something. Well, it's a different operating system. 
It doesn't work. The Bible has an operating system that is based exclusively on heterosexual relationships, male-female marriage, male-female parenting. That's the only model there is. So again, the question comes up. Well, if it's such a big issue, if homosexual practice is so bad and destructive, why doesn't the Bible say more about it? So let me unpack what I explained on this video. My friend Larry Tomzak gave a really good illustration. Let's say that you are really into healthy, nutritious eating, so you decide to, to compile a recipe book of healthy recipes, and, and you use all natural products, you know, dates and things like that for sweetening. So you have, in the beginning of your book, you explain these are great, tasty dessert recipes, but none of them use sugar. You will not find a single reference to sugar, refined sugar, anything like that in any of the recipes. All these recipes are absolutely sugar-free. So it's 200 pages of recipes. You do a search on your, your ebook, and you think, wow, the word sugar occurs only five times in this book. If it was so important to the author, why doesn't he talk about it more? Well, in point of fact, he leaves it out of every single recipe. Every recipe in the book is sugar-free. Every recipe in the Bible for marriage and family is heterosexual. Always, only, without exception, from the first page to the last. Even the image of God in Israel, that, that Israel is an unfaithful bride. The image of, of Jesus and the church represents the husband and the wife. It's, that's the only model there is. And then every so often, the biblical authors say, but this is wrong. This is very wrong. There is no sugar in these recipes. There is no sugar in these recipes. So let's move on to the first explicit prohibition of homosexual practice, and that's in Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, that is detestable. Well, the first thing that someone's going to say to you if you quote that verse is, do you eat shellfish? Do you eat lobster? Do you like pepperoni pizza? Whatever it is, they'll say, well, Leviticus in the 11th chapter says that's detestable. That's an abomination. You're being a hypocrite. So what we normally do is quote the verse back to them even louder in, in bold caps in the King James as if that's going to settle it. Because we don't have an answer. And a lot of us aren't willing to give up the shellfish or the pork or whatever. So, and look, I'm looking around here and you look at me. I've trimmed my beard. Leviticus 19 says don't cut the corners of your beard. And we could go through one violation after another in Leviticus, and, and many of us break those violations and don't think anything of it. So aren't we being hypocritical? Aren't we having a double standard? Not at all. The issue is that God gave Israel some laws simply to keep them separate from the nations. In other words, when God says to Israel, you can't wear a garment with mixed fabric, it's not because there was anything intrinsically sinful about doing that. There was nothing fundamentally wrong or sinful about wearing a garment that had two different fabrics to it. Or you couldn't sow two different kinds of seeds in the, in the same field. There was nothing intrinsically sinful about it, but God was teaching separation, separation, separation. So the same way with the dietary laws, many of them seem to be health-related, but not all of them. 
Why did God give them to Israel? Well, if you can't sit and eat with people, you don't build relationships with them. You don't, you don't intermarry. You don't do lots of things if you can't even have table fellowship. So this was one way of God keeping Israel separated from the nations. There are other things that God gave Israel that were based on universal moral principles, like don't murder, don't commit adultery. That's wrong for everybody. You say, but how do we tell them apart? How do we know which was just for ancient Israel and which is for all people for all time? Simple. The Bible tells us. You say, I've been reading the Bible for years. I haven't found that. Okay, let me explain how it tells us. It may say, this is for everybody. Or you may see that God judges a foreign nation for a certain thing. Like God never judged the pagan nations for eating pork, but he judged them for social injustice. He judged them for, for rape and murder. He judged them for those things because those are universally wrong. Or does the New Testament repeat it as something we have to live by? If the New Testament repeats it, then we know it is something we all have to live by. It's not just for ancient Israel. You say, okay, well, how do we decide these laws here? Leviticus 18. Most of Leviticus 18 deals with incest, laws against incest. And then it has laws against adultery, for example, or idolatry, or bestiality. So where do these fit? Leviticus 18.1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I'm the Lord your God. All right. Well, it says don't do as they do, but it still doesn't say it's wrong for them. It's one thing for God to say, okay, you can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do what the others are doing. It's another thing to say it's wrong for the others as well. So let's get to the end of the chapter. Verse 24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Oh, so these things defiled the Canaanites too. These things were bad for the Canaanites also. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So the land of Canaan itself was defiled by the sins of the people because of which judgment came on the people. Simple principle, if it's wrong for idol-worshiping pagans, it's wrong for Christians. Make it plain, that's it, come on, I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it. But you must keep my decrees and my laws, the native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things, for all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. This is wrong for everybody. That's why you can't do them. You can't touch them. Well, that should settle things, but no gay activists will have another response. They will say, look, let's, let's go through some of these. Let's start in verse... 17, do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. 
Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is the testament. Aha, you see, verse 21 brought in idolatry. Verse 21 brought in sacrificing children to this deity Molech. And then it's after that that it talks about homosexual practice. So this is only sinful when it's in the context of idol worship. This is the gay theological argument, that it's only sinful to engage in same-sex practice when it's in temple prostitution, when it's involved with idolatry. Well, aside from the fact that there's no contextual connection saying that the one has to follow the other, what about the next verse, verse 23? Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Is it only wrong to have sexual relations with an animal as a temple prostitute? Or is that universally wrong for everybody? So that argument falls to the ground. Another argument is, no, 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 hang on, hang on. The, the Hebrew word there, detestable, King James abomination, in Hebrew is toeva. Toeva is just something that is ritually unacceptable. You know, when, when Joseph's brothers came down to Egypt, he told them, tell the Egyptians you're shepherds because that's detestable to the Egyptians. It was just, it's, it's contrary to their culture. So they'll say, okay, you go over here if you're going to practice that. that. That this is just cultural. It's not moral. That the word toeva has nothing to do with morality. Well, hang on. That's how God describes all of these sins in Leviticus chapter 18. It, it says that these things are detestable as we just read some of these very verses saying that. These things are abominable. Verse 26, you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things, any of these abominations. So all of these are summed up. It's on the same level in the list here of adultery or the same level on the list here of bestiality or of incest. Not only so, you have verses like Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, that, that speak of things that are detestable in God's sight, abominations, toivot, including things like shedding of innocent blood. So these can absolutely be moral violations, and remember, they were severe enough for God to vomit the people out of the land. And God says, you do this, and it's the same for you. The idea that something becomes holy, it's, if it's unholy, and you do it enough with the same person over a period of time that it becomes holy is absolute madness. It's like, no, I'm really committed to this adulterous relationship, so that must make it good or right. Oh, no, no, I'm a kleptomaniac. I steal all the time. No, doing something over and over. The, the, people say, no, but we're in a loving, committed relationship. But if the thing itself is wrong, you're just committing the same thing over and over. You may love the person you're committing adultery with, but it's still sin. Yeah, but, but hang on, what about the fact that it also lists here, don't approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Well, what's interesting is even though that was taboo in Israel and is listed in this, this, this uh, forbidden list of, of things, it's also interesting that in Leviticus 20, 
There's a death penalty for adultery. There's a death penalty for homosexual practice. There's a death penalty for idolatry, but there's not the same penalty for violating that injunction of not having sex during a woman's period. And in Leviticus 15, it would seem if it happens unintentionally, it's just a matter of uncleanness. In any case, fine, we abstain. That's not the issue. The fact is, if you take Leviticus 18 out, I've never once gotten even a half answer from a gay activist or theologian on this. If Leviticus 18 was just ritual prohibitions that were for ancient Israel, and they don't all apply to us today, then show me in the Bible why incest is wrong. Don't just tell me, oh, that's, that's icky. Show me in the Bible why it's wrong. I was, I was sitting with a, a local gay couple some years ago after a gay pride event in, in our city. Uh, we, well, we, we got notified before the event. Police called the pastor of our church and said, there's going to be a protest outside of your church on Sunday. We just want you to know it. So I got on the radio because we're in different parts of the country, but we also have a good local station. I got on the radio and said, hey, I hear there's going to be a protest. I said, please don't come in small numbers. We'd love to welcome you. Please come in large numbers. We've been praying for you. And then the pastor, just a wonderful, warm-hearted guy, he got on social media on one of their platforms and said, I'd love to meet you, and you're welcome to come to my home for dinner. So anyway, I was out of the country when it happened, but it was only a, it was only a small group that came maybe 10 or 15 people. So our folks went out, were ready. They, were, they went outside to greet them and welcome them and had refreshments for them and said, please come in the service. We'd love to have you in the service with us. After about 15 minutes, they apologized. And they said, we're sorry, you don't deserve a protest. The next day, the leader of the protest calls my radio show to apologize. And, and he says, listen, he said, we thought you were somebody else. He said, we, we got there, and he said, we met the love of God. It was perfect. Those were his words. And I said, well, look, here's my, my question. You're not changing your views. I'm not changing mine. We live in the same city. How can we be neighbors in the midst of our differences? He goes, well, that's what I want to talk about. I said, well, let's have dinner. So the pastor and I, together with him and his partner, had dinner. Good, honest conversation, talking back and forth. They both professed to be followers of Jesus. So I said to him, listen, I just want you to explain to me theologically why it would be wrong for two brothers who love each other to, to marry. We're not even talking about a brother or sister where there are possible genetic problems if they had a child. But here's two brothers. They can't reproduce. There's not going to be genetic problems with offspring. I said, what's wrong with two brothers who love each other and, and who want to spend the rest of their lives together? Why can't they marry? And the guy said, well, that's icky. I said, well, look, what you do is icky to me. There's got to be more than that, just that you find it icky. Well, I find your relationship icky. That, that's, not, that's not the defining line here. If you take this out of the Bible, you come back to somebody with this. If you take this out of the Bible, then based on what scripture is incest forbidden? See, these are foundational things for human thriving. And that's why they're laid out. So these are universal moral principles. Remember the simple thing. Why do you eat shellfish? God gave certain laws to Israel to keep them separate from the nations, but they're not inherently right, wrong, moral, immoral. And he gave other laws to Israel based on universal moral principles that are wrong for everybody. The prohibition against homosexual practice is just like prohibition against adultery, prohibition against incest. It's wrong for everybody. Now, you might say, okay, fine, but we're not under the law of Moses. This is not being under the law of Moses. These are universal principles. 
Remember, God judged the Canaanites who were not under the law of Moses for these things. But let's go over to the New Testament. Remember what Piers Morgan challenged me with. Any of you ever play baseball? You ever have a nice slow pitch come to you that you just like, I can't believe you threw me that pitch. So for him to challenge me, you know, show me one, t- one place, one time where Jesus said anything about gay. Well, again, it was not a question in the first century. Jewish literature that existed at that time was even harsher than what's in the Bible, prohibiting homosexual practice. And it was, it was even a tradition among, among Jewish men that guys could share a room, could share a bed, because they didn't have a problem with homosexuality in, in, in Israel. It was, it was just considered such a taboo, wrong thing. It, 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 would, it would be like saying, you know, you, you meet Lauren Cunningham and say, do you think missions is important? I mean, this is not a question in these, you, know, you meet Billy Graham, Reverend Graham, do you, do you think rape is wrong? This would not be a question. Jesus, Rabbi Yeshua, what is homosexual practice wrong? These were not questions that existed, okay? So it didn't need to be addressed. And if you want to use the argument from silence, well, Jesus didn't say anything about wife beating. I guess that's okay. And Jesus did not deny UFOs so they're real. I mean, it's, it's just as silly an argument. I don't see anywhere where Jesus told me to get that vaccine. Or I don't see anywhere where Jesus told me not to get the vaccine. I mean, it's, you, it's an argument from silence, okay? Was, is there a jab controversy here? I didn't, didn't want to step into that. Anyway, so... What I did explain on the, uh, in that short interview that I want to unpack here is that in three different ways, Jesus does address the issue for the benefit of all of us later on. In, in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, beginning verse 17, he says, don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So how does he fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, Say, sacrifices, offerings, he, he fulfills them by dying for us. He becomes the ultimate sacrifice. He becomes the great high priest. The biblical calendar, the Passover, these different things, he now brings to their full meaning through his life and death. His return will fulfill the rest of the biblical calendar. What about the moral precepts of the Torah? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, don't even commit adultery in your heart. He takes them to a higher level. You heard don't murder. I'm telling you, don't hate. So he takes the moral commandments of the Torah to a higher level. So if if these things were moral commandments in the Torah, these laws of, of, of sexual purity and righteousness, those don't go away. Those go taken to a higher level. That's the first thing. Then in Matthew, the 15th chapter, he's dealing with the question of, of eating with unwashed hands. People say, well, if you do that, then the food's unclean. What you're eating is unclean. It defiles you. And he says, no, no, no. Nothing you eat defiles you. That means even if you ate pork or, or, or something else that was an unclean animal, it doesn't spiritually defile you because it goes in your mouth and, it, and passes out of your system. But then he says this, Matthew 15, beginning in verse 19, verse 18, sorry. The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. The word sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia in the plural. In other words, sexual immoralities. So adultery is sexual sin in the context of marriage. Married man, a married woman, sinning with each other. They're They're not married to each other, it's adultery. Sexual immorality, here in the plural, is all sexual acts outside of marriage. Again, it's, it's in a plural form, and it's clear what it's referring to, especially when it's next to adultery. So all sexual acts outside of marriage are defiling. Now we get to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, and he's being asked, Jesus is being asked about a controversy between the Pharisees concerning divorce. The two pharisaical schools, one said you can divorce for any reason, the other said only for sexual immorality. So Jesus is asked about it, and he says this, verse 4, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made the male and female? Oh, so this is the original design. Let's get back to that. Homosexuality was not the question. That, no one's asking that. He made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Isn't it interesting that he even mentioned the male and female part? He didn't just talk about two people marrying for life. He talked about male and female marrying for life. And this is how God established it in the beginning. So he now tells us what marriage is, the lifelong union of one man and one woman as intended by God. Matthew 19, Matthew 15, he tells us all sexual acts committed outside of that union are defiling. And then he takes the standards of the Torah to even higher level. So in three different ways, he does directly address this question of homosexual practice. I mean, it's utterly impossible according to his definitions and his standards. Now, some have claimed that in biblical days, Moses, Jesus, Paul, were familiar with homosexual prostitution or homosexual pederasty or homosexual promiscuity, but they were not familiar with lifelong monogamous committed relationships, man with a man, woman with a woman, loving same-sex relationships. Let's just say for a moment that was true. All right, I'm going to dispute that it was true. But just for the moment, let's say it was true. Well, what do we do with John 2.24 that tells us that Jesus knew what was in everyone's hearts? Jesus could look at you and know what was in your heart. Jesus could see inside of you. Are you telling me that with all the alleged people who were struggling with same-sex attraction that were following him, that he, he couldn't look into their heart? No, you're struggling, you're struggling, you're struggling. And and that, in fact, he did look in their hearts, and he did know they were struggling, but he didn't choose to say a word. I I had a mini-debate with a gay activist, and this subject came up, and later on, I saw some of his alleged Christian defenders. You know what they said? Well, Jesus really didn't know everything. It was rather, rather than abandon their view, they're going to denigrate who Jesus is. It's just what's going to happen. It says he didn't put any trust in men because he knew what was in the hearts of men. 
Well, hang on. People say, wait a second, wait a second. Jesus gives kind of a wink to those who are same-sex attracted. He gives a wink later in the chapter. Because as Jesus is teaching about divorce, and the disciples are like, if that's the case, maybe it's better never to marry. You get in a bad marriage and you're stuck with it, maybe it's better never to marry. So Jesus says in, in verse 11, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So what does he mean some are born eunuchs? Well, they're born without sexual capacity. There's a biological issue of some kind, and they are born without sexual capacity. They cannot have sexual relations. They cannot reproduce. Those are people born eunuchs. The ones who are made eunuchs would be men who are castrated, which was a common practice in the ancient world. So it, it took away a lot of the male drive and things like that, and they would be very servile, etc. So that's the second thing. People who are made eunuchs by others, and others who make themselves eunuchs, in other words, live like a eunuch, saying, hey, I'll never marry. I'm just giving, I'm, I'm giving myself to the Lord. So here's the gay argument, that these, these people who were thought to be born eunuchs, a lot of them were actually gay. And because they had no interest in women, people just assumed that they were born eunuchs. And that Jesus knew they were out there and is kind of giving them a wink and saying, hey, I know you're there. I know you're in this crowd. So let's say, even if it was the case that a gay man with no interest in women, and obviously in the society he can't be having sex with other men, that people would just think he's a eunuch. Even if this is true, and Jesus is kind of giving them a wink and saying, I know you're there, what's he saying? You'll never have sex and you'll never marry. He's, in other words, if you are truly identified as a eunuch, then you never have sex because you can't have sex and you never marry. The idea that Jesus is saying, I know you're born that way, is, is completely contrary to, to what this text is saying. Doesn't it? You're born gay. But even if, even if someone was considered a eunuch in the society, and Jesus is reaching out to them and saying, I know you're there, it was understood that they didn't marry or have sex. So how does that help the cause for gay marriage? It doesn't. It's completely contradictory anyway. You want to know how far some gay theologians have gone with trying to transform the Bible? There, there was actually a, a billboard campaign in major cities in America where, where they alleged that Jesus sanctioned homosexuality. And, and they point it to, to Matthew, the eighth chapter, or Luke, the seventh chapter. It's, it's a parallel passage where there's a centurion and his servant is terribly sick. And he comes to Jesus, sends messengers asking for healing because he's really valuable. And, and he's, he's called, it's, it's the common word for servant. Jesus is called the, the servant of the Lord in the scriptures. Other individuals are servants of the Lord. Every time it's used in the, in, in the Bible, this Greek word in the New Testament or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, every single time it's something means servant, there is never, ever, 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 ever any type of sexual connotation with it whatsoever, ever, not a single time. But outside of the Bible, in some cases, it can have the derogatory meaning of like boy, like your sex toy. And they actually claim 
that when this man says, heal my servant, because he's really valuable to me, so this would be someone maybe taken in captivity, a young man taken in captivity by this Roman soldier. And Jesus is saying, he's really valuable to me. Would you heal him? That Jesus healed him so they could keep having sex. This is actually an argument that's used. That Jesus knew that this was a man-boy sexual relationship, and the boy was sick, and Jesus, fully knowing it, heals him. I mean, you talk about a perverse reading of Scripture. So the same Jesus who tells the woman caught in the act of adultery, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more, heals the boy sex toy of a soldier so they can keep having sex. You talk about turning the Bible upside down. I mean, you're looking at me like, what? Yeah, that's the correct thing. What? These are some of the arguments. This is what happens when you try to find support in Scripture for something that's not there. If you say, I didn't follow that at all, just don't worry about it. Ignore it. Well, hang on, hang on. I didn't see anything in all this about women. I didn't see that mentioned. Now, it doesn't have to be mentioned explicitly. The Hebrew, the, the, the laws that were given in Hebrew are given to, normally to masculine singular, then applied from there. But now we come to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. And let's look at what Paul writes there. Romans chapter 1. And as we're going there, people will point out that Jesus hung out with the prostitutes, that he hung out with the hated tax collectors, that he went to the marginalized. He absolutely did. But he did not practice affirmational inclusion. In other words, he didn't reach out to the prostitutes and the tax collectors and say, hey, I'm going to help you be a better prostitute. I'm going to help you extort more money. I just want to affirm your calling as a prostitute or a tax collector, as a sinner. No, he did not practice affirmational inclusion. He practiced transformational inclusion. He reached out to people where they were and transformed them by his presence and his word. That's the gospel. The gospel does not meet you where you are and now we affirm you where you are. The gospel is we meet you where you are and we offer you transformation and new life in Jesus. That's the gospel. Say it again, he did not practice affirmational inclusion, but transformational inclusion. Now, here's an interesting thought. Many times, congregations that are either gay-affirming or largely gay-lesbian couples, trans, will attract people on the margins better than our churches. Because often, you have the impression that we have it together. And, and we like the on-fire people and the committed people and the zealous people. And, you know, our worship team is amazing and our pastor is amazing and, and, and the greeting team, everybody's amazing and wonderful. And you just kind of feel like you don't fit. And, and many people are drawn to, to gay and lesbian congregations because they don't fit other places. They're different. Or, you know, here you, you've got a bizarre outward appearance the way you dress and, and, and carry yourself and identify and things like that. So you find a home among others who've suffered rejection and who are on the margins. We can learn from that to make sure that we always have a heart for the marginalized. That, that we ask God for, for his heart. Because many of us, when we came to the Lord, did not really look like good candidates. <laughs> You know, many of us were the type you'd walk on the other side of the street to get away from, but God saw who we could be. 
And it's, it's so good when you can get a vision from, from the Lord. I don't mean you have to see it with your eyes, but feel, I can see your potential in God. I could see what God could make out of you. I could see a beauty in you that others don't see. We had a fellow visit our church once, and he came in dressed all in black, black fingernails, heavy black eye makeup, a very outwardly satanic look, and got befriended by our young people, and next thing, weeks go by, he's up there with them, he's smiling and getting involved. I don't know what happened to him ultimately, but I do know what happened when he was with us. He told us that he visits churches, was not a believer, visits churches intentionally with that appearance to see how he's welcomed. And he specially, for whatever reason, he specially did it up with our folks and was warmly welcomed. In fact, that's the kind of person you're looking for. Right? You know, those are, those are the, ones that, the ones on the margins and the outcasts. Those are often the ones most ripe for the gospel. So let, let's learn to have that heart. And sometimes that means reproach because you're, you're spending time with people that are marginalized and that are rejected. And it makes you look bad. As long as you're not sinning in the process, have that heart. And now you can bring them into wholeness in the Lord. All right, so Romans chapter 1, verse 18 the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Okay, so when you read this, it seems quite clear, quite evident that Paul is making categorical statements against sexual immorality and homosexual relations. There's one argument that says, no, 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 the context is idolatry. These were the things that were done in the idolatrous temples. That there were acts of sexual immorality, heterosexual and homosexual, that took place in idolatrous temples. 
And that's the context of Paul's prohibition. It says, and it's about people inflamed with lust. It says nothing about loving, committed, same-sex relationships. Well, the problem is, when you read through the chapter and you get to the end, which is why I read to the end, Paul is just talking about human evil, people disobeying their parents, people who hate God, people who are arrogant and boastful. In other words, he's not just saying these are sins that take place in idol temples. He's saying that because the human race historically rejected God, God gave us over to our sin and our folly. When we continue to reject him, he gave us over even more. When we rejected him yet again, he gave us over even more. And this is now where we find the human race. That's all he's saying. Otherwise, it's only sinful to disobey your parents at an idol temple. It's only sinful to be arrogant and boastful at an idol temple. That's obviously not what he's saying. Well, there's a, there's a new argument. To my knowledge, it's not found in any Roman's commentary by any scholar commentator in history until the sexual revolution. I can't say that with certainty, but to my knowledge, it was something only created after gay theologians started looking at this and after the sexual revolution. The argument is this. Okay, so let's, let's look again at the specific language. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust, verse 26. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. All right, so here's the gay argument. It's natural for a same-sex attracted person to want to be with the, uh, the same sex. It's natural for a heterosexual to want to be with the opposite sex. Paul is talking about heterosexuals who became so inflamed with lust that God gave them over to homosexual desires, something that was unnatural for them. It's unnatural for me to be attracted to a man. It's natural for me to be attracted to a woman. It's natural for my wife to be attracted to a man. It's unnatural for her to be attracted to a woman. So God gave heterosexuals inflamed with lust and idolatry over to their lust to do what is unnatural for them. That's what it means. Again, the first problem is, it's interesting that no one studying Romans through all the centuries ever came up with that. But the way to refute it is when you read through Romans 1, it is constantly going back to Genesis 1. Especially if you read Romans 1 in Greek and compare it to Genesis 1 in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, you will see seven, eight, nine different points of reference where the same words, the same language is used. And here's what's really interesting. Throughout the New Testament, it talks about men, women, men, women, men, women. It doesn't talk about men and women here. It talks about male and female. Male and female. You rarely have that in Paul's writings, only a few times, that he references male, female. It's always men, women. Jesus references male, female, God created. Paul is talking about natural according to our nature as God created us. The natural function of the man biologically is with the woman. The natural function of the woman biologically is with the man. And here they exchange the natural use, not what's natural to them, but the natural function is made by God at creation. They exchange that for something unnatural. So Paul is plainly saying, and there are even gay scholars, gay theologians that just say, yeah, Paul had a problem with homosexual practice. We have to accept that. We just say he was wrong. In other words, once again, rather than say, I've got to submit my life to God, 
I'll change the word accordingly. It's explicit. It's as black and white as can be. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 6? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this in verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, now the NIV says, nor men who have sex with men, we'll come back to that, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All right. First thing. There are two separate words that are used in Greek. The first one in the King James is translated effeminate. What does that mean? Why does the King James say effeminate? Greek is literally soft, like, like John the Baptist wearing, you didn't go out to someone wearing soft clothes. So what does it mean, effeminate? Just if you, if you have a lisp or you, you sound like a woman, is that, is that, are you going to hell for that? Is that what he's saying? So why does the King James translate as effeminate? And then the second is a unique Greek word. It's not found outside of the Bible for centuries. It's, it's a word either Paul came up with or other Jewish teachers came up with. It's the exact language of Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13. In Greek, it's literally lying with a man. It's literally what it is in Greek, lying with a man from those prohibitions. It absolutely, in these early centuries, always refers to same-sex practice. It's, I, I even have Greek scholars, gay Greek scholars, saying, yeah, there's no question what the word means. People try to get out of it. There's no question what the word means. The words used together undeniably speak of what would be called the passive partner and the active partner. So the effeminate meaning men who act like women to attract other men, men who are, quote, the bottoms in a homosexual relationship, a sexual act, that these two words together indisputably refer to men having sex with men. It's not specifically pederasty. It's not specifically prostitution, promiscuity. It has nothing to do with idolatry. These are the plain meanings of the words. The NRSV, New Revised Standard Version, which is written not by scholars who hold to the authority of Scripture the same as we do. They would be called, quote, progressive. They changed it to speak of people having illicit sex, which is utterly meaningless. And there is zero support for it. Zero Greek scholarly support. I own every major Greek dictionary that exists. There is no support for it. When you study it out, the history, language, interpretation, zero. It's just people trying to get the Bible to say what they want it to say. So here is an explicit prohibition. And remember, you already have fornication. That's just sex outside of marriage. And, you know, men, women fooling around outside of marriage. You have adultery. This is another category. But it's the same as all of them. That's what some of you were. You used to do that. You used to live like that. You don't anymore. So Paul is also quite clear on that. He said, well, but I, I saw a video on TikTok. And it went viral, so it must be right. And it, and it said that Martin Luther, when he translated Leviticus 18.22, he said, it's man having sex with a boy. Look it up in the German. Yeah, Luther translated Bible into German. 
Yeah, he made lots of mistakes in the Hebrew. He was not a Hebrew scholar. He did an amazing job, but he's not a Hebrew scholar. There is zero translation anywhere in the ancient world or in the modern world based on the Hebrew that says that. I mean, I put up a video where I showed, okay, here's, the, here's Luther's German, here's where he got it wrong, here's the ancient Hebrew, here's the ancient Aramaic, here's the ancient Greek, here's the ancient Syriac, here's the ancient Latin. They all got it right. And every translation in history has gotten the right. Luther made a mistake. It's that simple. For whatever reason, he made a mistake. There's nothing in the Hebrew there. The same thing with Paul's words. You can make them into what you want, but that's not what he said. That's not what he wrote. What about the idea, though? That, oh, okay, okay, listen. I see that the Bible never says anything positive. Even in, in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul's dealing with, with issues, okay, of singleness, it's, gonna be, it's getting rough here. Maybe it's just better to be single. If you have the gift that I have, you just concentrate on the Lord. And he says, but if you can't, then every man should have a woman and every woman should have a man. It's still, still the only options that he presents, right? You say, okay, okay, but look, the, the Bible was still a book in its time. And we have to realize that that we've learned more and evolved more. Well, that gets very tricky, right? Once you start interpreting the Bible based on culture today, it gets very, very tricky. But even if you wanted to make that argument, the fact of the matter is that we have evidence from the ancient Greek and Roman world that they did have committed same-sex relationships. Or is, is that something that only existed now? that same-sex attracted people through history never had committed same-sex relationships until recently. Wouldn't that be bogus? There's no love, there's no commitment, there's no desire to spend your life with someone? There's evidence of, quote, marriages of man with man, things like that. There are even ancient Jewish traditions, we don't know how far back they go, but they may have been known in Jesus' day, that says that one of the reasons that God wiped out the earth with the flood was because they were issuing marriage certificates between men and men. It's an ancient Jewish tradition. We know it exists within 200 years of the time of Jesus, but these Jewish traditions often go back centuries and centuries. And the question is, where did they get the idea from? Maybe it's what they were seeing in society around them, or maybe they were passing on a very ancient tradition. The fact is, God understands us. And it's God who inspired Moses and Jesus and Paul and the writers of the New Testament. And there's not a single positive reference. How could you teach all this and leave out David and Jonathan? You went through the whole thing. Oh, because you, you didn't want these susceptible students to hear because once they heard that, they'd realize you were wrong. That's why you left it out. Well, there are even gay activists who say, actually, that, that doesn't really help our cause. First, first thing, there's not a sexual act that's ever spoken in between them. He says, well, they, they kiss, everybody kissed in the world. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Everybody. Kissing is, is a normal way of greeting and all that. There, there's a way to talk about a sensual kiss in the Bible. It doesn't describe that. There are many verses in the Bible that speak very explicitly about sexual acts. Not a syllable of that. Not a syllable of a sexual act between them. They hug, embrace, they exchange garments in terms of a covenantal agreement. But Jonathan marries and has children. And hang on, doesn't David get in trouble because of his lust for women? A same-sex attracted man, a man who identifies as gay and to the core of his being, he's only attracted to the same sex. He sees a beautiful woman bathing on a 
rooftop, he might think she's beautiful, but he's not attracted to her. He's not going to call for her to sleep with her. David has multiple wives and gets into massive trouble because of his lust for women. So the whole David Jonathan thing breaks down on, on every level. And like I said, there are gay activists who said, no, actually, that doesn't prove our case. Wait a second. How could you leave out Ruth and Naomi? You're trying to trick these people. Come on. You've heard it at weddings. You've heard it. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Where does that marriage formula come from? It comes from what Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi. They were lesbians. <clears throat> oh, trust me, these are major arguments used. These are common arguments used. I mean, it does make me feel bad for people that use them. I mean, you got to stretch and look at this. Okay, number one, they were both married to men. Number two, Ruth married a man. She didn't marry Naomi. She married Boaz, and they had children together. Number three, number three, or two, however we're counting, this was not a marriage formula. This was Ruth saying, I'm staying with you. I'm not going back to my homeland, even though my husband died, your son died. I'm going with you back to Israel, and your God will be my God. The fact that people later take it and use it as a marriage formula doesn't make them lesbians. <clears throat> but these are some of the things you hear, and some are so crazy. You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. And then some of the interpretation gets utterly sickening. When I wrote A Queer Thing Happened to America, and I, I put together in one chapter various commentaries. I own the Queer Bible Commentary and many other related books. And I just went through them and pulled out some of the interpretations. When I finished writing the chapter, a long chapter, Nancy was, was, was in her little cubby or little, little office in our house. And I went in and I just broke down, I just broke down sobbing. I was so grieved by this perversion of Scripture. But again, once you read the Bible through the lens of your sexuality, it can mean any kind of thing. There is, was that another amen? Or a make it plain? Is that, okay, I missed that. I'll, I'll show you where you can watch some recent debates. I did many debates with a, a professing gay Christian and a, and a professing trans Christian. The most bizarre arguments, the most unbelievable out-of-context arguments to try to say, that Jesus affirmed transgender identity. I'll give you one quick example, then we'll take a break. Jesus found some of the disciples, the fishermen, what were they doing? They were mending nets. Women mend nets. He chose them because they were men doing what women do. He was pro-trans. You've got to be kidding me. She's writing her PhD and all this stuff. She's doing her PhD thesis on this. It's like arguments. That was one of the better arguments. That was one of the stronger arguments. It's like, actually, if you're a fisherman out in a boat, miles away from people, and you have a tear in your net, you actually learn to mend nets. That, oh, we got to pull the boat back in and find some lady to mend the net. No, you learn men also mended nets. But there's arguments like that. But when I hear it, because she's groping, she's, she's trying to find herself somewhere, right? She's trying to find herself in the Bible, find some kind of identity. 
I, I, my heart goes out to the people. I mean, the arguments are absolutely laughable, but it breaks my heart for the people because they're, they're trying to find some place of identity. And, and what you have to do is come, like we all do, broken sinners. That's our place of identity. But before we know it, broken sinners needing mercy. Start there. Lord, uh, there are a lot of broken people in the Bible. I'm one of them. I, I need help. And, and then find a new identity in Jesus. So, again, the video, consider this. This is the little summary that you can watch again and remember. My book, Can You Began Christian, gets into great depth on this. If you search on our, on our app just for that subject, Gay and Christian, you'll see uh, whole sermons we have. So, so you can get this, review it. But here's the key thing. If, by the question, can you be gay and Christian, we mean, can you be same-sex attracted, say no to those attractions, and follow Jesus? Yeah, absolutely, of course. We, we all say no to different things, of course. If it means, can you practice firm homosexual practice, be in an active relationship with someone romantically, sexually, and follow Jesus at the same time? No, of course, just like everything else. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow him. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to know more, find us online at wildcona.org and we will catch you next time.